Good morning. One of the things that we're seeing a lot in the last couple weeks with people having a bit more extra time on their hands is an increase in the amount of lists that people are making regarding their favorite of something. It may be your favorite Star Wars movie after The Rise of Skywalker came out, or it may be the goat of a specific sport now that The Last Dance has been seen. Now, these lists aren't new to this era. They've been happening for a long time. And one of the lists that commonly get, comes about every year is a Gallup poll that talks about the most trustworthy professions in our culture. So before I go there, what do you think are the top most trusted professions? And then what do you think are the bottom least trusted professions? Well, at the top of the list are those that are typically in the medical professions. And 19 years running, nurses are the most trustworthy pr profession. Right behind that are engineers, medical doctors, pharmacists, and dentists. So thank you for being trustworthy. Those are very important things. But what's at the bottom of the list? What's the least trustworthy? Well, the bottom three least trustworthy professions, according to this survey, are car salespeople, members of Congress, and senators. Now, what does this list reveal to us? Well, it shows and it reveals something that we kind of already know, that there's a lacking of practice when it comes to honesty, integrity in our culture, but there's still a longing for that ideal. I mean, you look at the news cycles today, you see how both sides of the aisle, politicians on the left and on the right, are proclaiming things that they know are not to be true. You have journalists that, are, that tend towards both sides that are spinning the news and uh, sharing news that only comes with their agenda. But not just that. It gets even more practical than that. You have husbands and wives, as we talked about last week, that don't live up to their, their commitments and oaths and vows that they made to one another and to God. You have people that are over committing and saying yes to too many things out of various reasons that we'll talk about. Or you have people under committing because they don't want to break some things. It's, this is a honesty and pervasiveness of lack of trustworthiness that is all throughout our culture. And in the middle of this, we as God's people ask the question, what does Jesus have to say about this? We're going to see in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, which let me remind you, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's vision for human flourishing. Then in the midst of that, Jesus's future kingdom is present through his people's trustworthiness and honesty. That he is calling his people to realize what the future reality of his kingdom is like and to start living that now in the present. And this comes with what we commit to, what we um, have a vow and oaths towards, and what we say and honestly speak with our words. So this is, like I mentioned, in the Sermon on the Mount that we're looking at Matthew 5, 33 through 37. 
And we're in the portion of the Sermon on the Mount that has come after Jesus has said he's not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He is now setting up a new, more heart-oriented, as well as action-oriented way for his people to live according to his rule and reign. And by living according to that, we get to flourish as human beings. This is the way that life was always meant to be. He's giving us six examples of how what the law states um, is one thing, but how he is taking us to a further heart level intention behind it. And right now, in this passage, he's addressing oaths and commitments that we take. So verse 33, let me read it again, says this, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, Jesus is not directly quoting one specific passage at this moment. What he's doing is he's actually bringing about a few different passages and bringing them all together. So let me go ahead and read some of those for you. The first one is Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. This is one of the Ten Commandments. It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Continuing, Leviticus 19.12, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 23, uh, verse 21, if you take a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. Numbers 30 verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds from his mouth. Okay, so... In the background of this, Jesus has this understanding and his listeners and the teachers of the law that he's addressing are going about uh, living out of those laws. And that's what Jesus is addressing here. So how are they going about doing this? So in the Ten Commandments, it says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Pharisees at the time, the teachers of the law, we're focusing on, do not take the name of the Lord your God. Okay, that's, that's what they highlighted out of that. And they de-emphasized the in vain. So what does it mean to be in vain? It means to not do it out of a trustworthy place or to do it ineffectively. Not do what you were supposed to do or what you committed to. That's what it means by in vain. This isn't just speaking about don't swear on the golf course. This is talking about how you commit to living Because, and this is super important, you bear the name of the Lord your God. So let me back up for a moment. We as men and women, all people that have ever lived, bear God's image, which means that through our lives, we are showcasing all of creation what God is like. It it is by the actions and words of image bearers that we showcase the nature and character of God. But out of all those people, and after um, sin came into the world, he chose a specific covenant people called the Israelites that he was going to make a kingdom of priests 
They were to be the specific people that were mediators between God and men to showcase what Yahweh was like. Look at their actions, look at their laws, look at their words, and by looking at them, you will know the nature and character of God. But what were they doing? They did not live up to that. The Not just the Mosaic law, the original people that heard this on Mount Sinai. This bleeds throughout all the story of God's people. They don't live up to the vows that they commit. They don't live up to the standards by which they were called. And that led to and resulted in the Pharisees of the day. So what were they doing? Like I mentioned, they focused on do not take the Lord the name of the Lord. Where do we see that? Verses 34 through 36. Let me read it again. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Obviously, Jesus is talking prior to hair dye. Now we can make that salt and pepper a little bit less salty. So, here Jesus is addressing, and what are the Pharisees doing? They're doing what I'll call theological dodgeball. Great movie. What We find out what the five D's of dodgeball. What are they? Dodge, duck, dip, dive, and dodge. All, how are they doing that? By focusing on just not taking the Lord, the name of the Lord, they were substituting that with all these different things. Because there's honor and authority and power that came from God. They were like, oh, well, okay, we're not going to break this law. So we're going to dodge out of this one by placing the name of heaven. So I'm going to make an oath by the name of heaven. And that will make sure I, if I break it, I'm not breaking this commandment. Or, oh, no, 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 I'm going to um, dodge it. I'm going to dip out of the way by taking an oath on, the, uh, on earth. Oh, so I'm not breaking that law. I'm, I'm dipping out of the way because I'm, not, I'm only focusing on one aspect of it. But they forgot about the in vain. And this is how Jesus specifically addressed the Pharisees later on in Matthew 23. He says to this, starting in verse 16, Woe to you blind guides um, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You fools! For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So, listen, whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. The Pharisees and the people of the day in playing theological dodgeball were trying to get out of being guilty. And so it produced an environment where they were extremely deceptive. 
They could not trust one another's words. They could not, they would not believe in a very oral culture that someone would do what they say. And so they had to borrow from God's authority because their own trustworthiness. We see this in our day. Have you ever seen people say, I promise I'm going to, I'm going to keep my word this time. They don't just let their yes be yes. Will you do this? Yes, I will do it. And if somebody says that to you, you, you have an idea if somebody's actually going to do that or not. They're, do they have trustworthiness? Will they do what they say? Will they commit to following through on the very things that they said that they were going to do? So if you f- see somebody, and you may be somebody like this, that you have to overpromise because you are not received and perceived as somebody that's very trustworthy. You're actually not going to say it. Like, oh, I know for the last five times I said I was going to do it, but this time I promise I'm going to do it. That's what's happening here with the Pharisees. They were deceptive. It produced a culture of mistrust, a culture of dishonesty amongst them. And Jesus was going after the heart of the issue. Why is this such a big deal? Proverbs says it this way. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, death and life are in the power of what? Of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Our words, our commitments, matter. By being made in the image of the creator God who spoke and everything came into reality. It is by his words that life came into being. Our words are significant. They carry weight. They are important. And so what Jesus is going after is, are you a person whose words are trustworthy and are you honest? If you make a commitment, are you the type of person that follows through? You may not believe me that words are that significant. So you may believe in the adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I'm going to submit to you, that's a flat out lie. Words have the power of life and death. Your commitments, what you say yes to and what you commit to comes out of bringing life or it can produce death. We all have experienced this from our parents. Their words either have the opportunity to give us life and set us up for an amazing future and success or in their demeaningness and shame-producing and vile nature, they could produce death in us and set us in motion for the rest of our lives. There's power in our words, and Jesus understands this. He knows that as the Creator. And so whether it's our oaths to God and we're making commitments to God and by God's name, whether we're committing to other people and our words are, we're saying these to other people, that can produce life and death, or it's what we're actually saying to ourselves and the, the, what we believe about what is true about us. 
all of these oaths, all of these commitments, all of these words that we speak are either producing life and creating a culture of honesty and trustworthiness, or they're producing a culture of death and destruction and relational disconnect. So before we start going after the heart behind why this may be the case, I want to pause. You're going to see a few questions on your screen that I invite you to allow everybody in the room to discuss. And then before we move, excuse me, and then I'm going to invite you back together and we're going to continue looking at what does this mean about in everyday life. Let me welcome you back together. As we get back and we finish up this passage, it's very easy for us to pick on the Pharisees. I mean, in a lot of ways, they become a theological punching bag for us. It's, they're easy to pick on. In some ways, it's low-hanging fruit. But if we're honest, we're really not that different from they are. What was Jesus teaching them to do? We see in verse 37, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more comes from evil or the evil one. See, what Jesus is saying is not, here's how you go about answering the question or how you make commitments. What he's going after is the very heart behind the action or what fuel is motivating the way in which we live. So Jesus is addressing the heart. So look at our own lives and we can ask the question, how have we done the very thing the Pharisees um, were accused of? How have we not let our yes be yes, or how have we not let our no be no? How have we created an environment where uh, dishonesty and mistrust can happen, where we haven't lived up to the expectations or the commitments that we've made? Now, just, just, so let's think of it in this last few months. Few, uh, and honestly, we can look at it just in January itself. What takes place in the beginning of every January? There's an oath that's made. I am going to lose X amount of pounds. I'm going to work out X amount of days in a row. There's commitments that are made. You can even bring it into our church family. Let me ask you this. In your DNA groups, one first, are you still meeting in the way that you committed to together? Do you go about doing the exercises or reading or studying and pursuing hearts like you committed to one another? Or do you say, yeah, I'll do that, but without any desire or without any um, thinking that you're actually going to fulfill that commitment? Think of our our church family, and I'm speaking specifically to our church and those that uh, profess faith in Jesus. We, because we have been given a a new identity, we're in covenant with God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we think it's healthy and wise to covenant together as a church family. We commit to living on mission in everyday life and and following Jesus together with our brothers and sisters in some federal way. 
Ways we do that are DNA, MC, proclaiming the gospel, submitting to elders, all those things. How are you doing at that? Are you still following Jesus in those ways that you committed to a few months ago? Are you loving one another like brothers and sisters? And I'm so encouraged and when I hear stories that are, but if we're, if we're honest, all of us are in some ways guilty of the very thing that Jesus is addressing. And I'll use one last example. And it's a similar example to what we talked about last week. The vows that you committed to as husband and wife. Is it, are you really committed through thicker and thin, through, through sickness and in health, till death do you part? Or are you in a, a struggle where you're looking for a way out, looking for the other person to give you a, the final excuse to leave? Now, those are all just some examples. There's a plethora more about what, what it is that implicates each and every one of us and how we and you and I do not live up to this standard. In some ways, you could say our hands are dirty in this. So if our hands are dirty, what does it mean? Anything more. If we're not letting our yes be yes, if we're not committing or if we're overcommitting or undercommitting or not living up to our commitments and vows and oaths that we've stated, then what does this say? It says anything more comes from evil. You see, scripture is a story of two kingdoms. It's the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. It's a kingdom that submits to God and his rule and reign and his authority Or it's a kingdom that aligns with the deceiver, with the evil one himself. And this goes back to the beginning of the story. What happens in the garden? Adam and Eve are given one rule. You shall not eat from that tree or you shall surely die. The deceiver comes up and what does he say? Did God really say? It plants in their hearts a belief and a doubt in the very character and nature of what God is like. He must be holding out on them. There must be else, something else that's good for them that he did not give them. And so they believe that. And so from that day on, every single one of us who do not rightly reflect God in his image, those in covenant that do not rightly bear his name, those that do not live up to their covenant commitments or their oaths or their vows, are joining in the work of the kingdom of darkness, not of the kingdom of the beloved son, not the kingdom of light. So all of us, by our willful actions and the very nature by which we live by being human as sons of Adam, scripture says, we are sinful and in need of help. And that sinfulness plays out in a few different ways on what motivates why we don't live up to those standards. For some of us, I would say it's out of fear. So you could be afraid of man. So why do is your yes not yes or your no not no? It could be because you're so afraid of letting people down that you're, you're not willing to say no when you should say yes. You, you're uh, willfully and regularly overcommit. You don't have a level of self-awareness to know what your limits are. And so you commit to things that you should not be committing to. That's an outworking of our sinful nature. 
on the same side of that fear, it cannot, may not be fear of man. It could be fear of mistakes. Now, there's a healthy level to that, but that fear shows up to you in undercommitting. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine this week that says that my generation uh, l- more likely will undercommit than overcommit. Where we're, there's a, a, a version to commitment to making an agreement upon something. And so we, we try to get around this idea by not breaking the law if we don't even commit to it itself. But I think the people of God are supposed to be a people that commit to things, that live up to it. Jesus isn't nilling and, and voiding every single vow or commitment that's ever lived. Scripture in itself says that God has made an oath. God lives up to agreements and commitments and covenants that he has made with us. So this isn't saying don't commit, don't commit to anything. This is saying no, no, no. Check your heart. Just let your yes be yes. Don't, don't commit out uh, out of God's authority and do it out of the place where you are, are trustworthy and you're reflecting God well. So it could be fear that's few the outworking of your sinful nature. It may be shame. Shame is something that I'm personally working through as I dive into the deeper places of my heart and my story. I'm shocked continually to find out how much shame, which is in essence, not only the desire to hide, but the feeling of not being enough, not smart enough, not strong enough, not gifted enough. And so it produces in uh, me or in us that uh, wrestle with shame, this toxicity that causes us to hide and push people away. And so that shame could be fueling your not letting your yes be yes and your no be no by either overcommitting or undercommitting. There's lots of different ways that that plays out. And so what do we do with this? Because I could say, now this is for everybody, for those that profess faith in Jesus and those that don't. None of us perfectly live up to what Jesus is saying. I mean, Jesus is raising the bar to a level that on my own strength, and I will even submit on your own strength, we cannot live up to. It's so good and perfect. And he says that towards the end of this chapter that we'll talk to in a few weeks, you shall be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And you know what? We're not. So for my friends that don't yet profess faith in Jesus, it's not just by living up to a moral standard that you are acceptable. So I'm not saying, hey, you just need to start committing more and you need to live up to that standard and do more, try hard and live up to it. That is not enough for either you or me. You and I are in need of help. We cannot do this on our own. Jesus is the only one who has ever lived that perfectly lives up to his uh, commitments. Think about the faithfulness of God throughout all generations. God is the only one who is always faithful, purely lives up to all of his commitments, all of the covenant, and What he did is that in that he sent Jesus to live a perfect life, perfectly submitted to the Father, always letting his yes be yes and his no be no. And in his death, he took on the sinfulness that is motivating our bad actions. He takes on the penalty of the bad actions themselves. 
And he pays the penalty for those sins so that you and I's sins can be forgiven. We can be reunited with the Father. We can walk in union with him. And as we walk in union with him by his spirit that was given to us as he ascended to heaven, we can now walk empowered in the same way that Jesus was. So this isn't do more on your own strength to live up to your commitments. This is no, we need our sins forgiven, our hearts cleansed from sin, and the sin that's still in our lives, we need the Spirit's help to um, address those, to be cleansed by those, by the power of Jesus, and to be empowered by the Spirit to walk and make sure that our yes is yes, that we commit to the things that he's leading us to, that we we keep our O's, that we live within the covenant that he's there. And that's what it means to be the people of God. That's what it looks like for his future kingdom to become present here and now. And that happens through the honesty and trustworthiness of his people. So you may not be honest, you may not be living up to the commitments, but you know what Jesus did on your behalf and now he's empowered you by his spirit to do that very thing. If you don't yet profess faith in Jesus, you you probably are well aware that you can't fully do the things that you commit to doing. All of us are in need of God's saving grace to forgive us, but to empower us. And can you imagine what it will be like when the world is made right by God and we won't have to have contracts, people actually not be sinfully motivated towards wrong actions, we'll be able to trust one another and honestly express our feelings and what's going on and say, you know, I can't do that or no, I can't do that. We won't have to sign contracts because we won't have to lack trust We won't have to look at the newspaper and find out if your profession is on the most trustworthy or least trustworthy list because when God comes to renew and restore all of creation, all will be made right again. And that which we're longing for, a culture and an environment of complete honesty and trustworthiness, that will be fully realized again. And that will happen because and for the glory of Jesus. So if you don't yet profess faith, this isn't a call to just go and try harder. This is a call to submit to Jesus. For those of us that do profess faith, this is a reminder for us of how God is empowering us to live in the midst of each and every day. Whether this trustworthiness is being played out in your home, whether you're a student and this trustworthiness is how you go about taking tests when we get back to that and doing the work that you've been asked to do, whether it's as a church family and living up to how we've covenanted with one another or in your profession about how you're trying to move your own career up or how you interact with your coworkers and bosses, all of our lives are in submission to Jesus, are in need of Jesus, which means that we should seek Jesus and his presence and his empowerment the deeper we dive into these texts. The deeper we realize what Jesus is calling us to, the more I realize my need for his help. 
And so we who have been forgiven now go going to go to the table after we sing a song to be reminded of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I'm going to pray for all of us that all of us will realize that Jesus' life was perfectly lived. He died on the cross to forgive your and my sins. And he rose again victorious over our greatest enemy so that we can now be empowered by his spirit to walk in his ways so his future kingdom is here in the present moment. So let me pray and then we'll, we'll send you off. Father, thank you. Thank you that you sent Jesus to perfectly live on my behalf and on our behalf. Thank you that you are intimately acquainted with our fears with the guilt of our sin, with the shame that we feel that we're not enough or we're, we need to hide. Jesus, you are perfectly acquainted because you bore all of it and all the penalty of it and all the weight of it on the cross. And in your grace, you extend your righteousness and your love and you bring us into union with you, empowered by your spirit to walk in your ways. So Jesus, I pray for my friends that are listening, that we all may again renew our trust and dependence on you, Jesus, as the forgiver of our sins, as our Savior, and as our Lord. And that as our Lord, empowered by your Spirit, we, your people, are being filled again to be a group of people that are trustworthy, that are honest, that live up to what you've asked of us, And we can only do that because we are empowered by your spirit. So Father, I thank you. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.